By that, I mean those who have not crucified themselves with Christ and become blah, blah, blah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're talking about salvation, certainly an often taught and sometimes contentious topic, but we're going to be addressing it with another tour of various scriptures, answering along the way questions concerning predestination, faith versus works, and eternal security. For writers, we'll be taking a look at how we create our villains, and such topics as the depth of their evil, justifying their actions, and their possible redemption. Plenty of heavy topics, so let's get started and see where we end up. So as most of you know, this has been a pretty heavy week, at least here in the U.S., recognizing for the moment that many of my listeners are coming from Europe, or at least overseas. But from responses I've seen on the internet, on Instagram and Facebook and things, and Twitter, and things like that, most of you are also aware of what's been going on here with the murder of George Floyd last week by police in Minneapolis. And it was an eye-opening event, to be sure. Not that it's the first of its kind by any stretch, but probably fueled by uh, everything that's been going on with COVID-19. Everyone's been kind of trapped inside and, you know, a lot of time for stress to build up because this hasn't been the first case like this. The protests that it has sparked and the, the discussions that it has set off, um, as I said, very heavy times for us. Good times, I think, because this, you know, obviously this is a situation that has needed to be addressed for a very long time. Tried to address it in the U.S. in the 1860s with the Civil War and freeing the slaves. Tried to address it again 100 years later in the 1960s with Martin Luther King Jr. and many others, many, many, many others. I don't want to minimize you know, other input, but certainly during that time. And now here we are 60 years later from that and racism is still alive and kicking as it were. And so with all of this happening and being very much on the public conscious, I, for a while, wasn't sure about doing this topic. I'd said, you know, on Saturday that, you know, we were going to be talking about salvation. And I recorded that again before all this stuff really, really started happening here. And so for a couple of days, I wasn't sure about doing this topic. And I have planned for the future to do an episode on the topic of love, defining what that is from the scriptural standpoint and from God's viewpoint, what love is. And somehow that seemed really a lot more appropriate. And I started thinking about it as like salvation doesn't necessarily cure racism. There are plenty of people who claim to be Christian. The Bible Belt South is where it seems to be the most alive, even though clearly this latest event happened in Minneapolis, so it's not limited to that. But there are plenty of people who claim to be Christians, who go to church, who profess love and belief in Jesus Christ, who are still racist and do things like that. So I wasn't sure that you know talking about salvation was going to help anything. And thought maybe if we talk about love instead, that might be a little bit more appropriate. But the reason I decided to stick with this topic might seem a little bit weird, but I actually started thinking about the end times. And I don't want this to be like a weird or creepy kind of thing. Um, I'm not here to start you know, trying to prophesy the end of the world because that's really not what this podcast is about. The only scripture that I stand on is that Jesus said, we don't know the day or the hour, so just keep watch. 
So we were supposed to act at all times and in every moment as if Jesus might come back in the very next moment. And we want to be found doing the thing that is right. I also look at in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the signs of the coming of the end of the age, he mentions nation will rise against nation. And another perhaps better way for us in at least here in the U.S. to translate it is race will rise against race. Back then, the idea of a nation was a common people. Here in the U.S., our nation is, it's a melting pot, as we've called it. So we have many different nations represented here. And we're not the only country that is like that. But so for us to think nation against nation, this isn't necessarily America against China or against Russia or anything like that. It's, it's race against race. And clearly, we also need to recognize that the white race, as it were, in the U.S., has arisen against the black race for a very, very long time. So that is not new. But this new you know, fight for equality and justice, again, while not 100% new, is certainly being elevated to a level that it has not seen for quite some time. And so I think it's appropriate now that given everything that's going on in the world, now here's where we need to be careful about looking at the end times, looking at prophecies or even just perceptions of what the world is going to look like, it can be very dangerous for us to have a Western-centric view, first of all. The first danger is that we can look at it and just say, well, all these certain things are happening in America that are super bad, so the end must be near. The world is a really big place. There are other countries that are their people are doing a lot better than we are. They are more well-off. For them, the world, the world is at large might seem... You know, there's certainly a lot of chaos and things going on, but within, you know, that particular country, things might look pretty well. Life is going pretty good. We need to be careful to really consider the entire world at large and not just get caught up in what's in our news cycle and say, well, it looks bad here to us, so it must be the end of the world. The second thing we need to watch out for is that we don't mistake the erosion of a group's power as a sign of the end of the times. What I mean by that is for white men, the fact that women are demanding equality, that they're demanding to not be sexually assaulted and raped, and that the African-American community is standing up and demanding equality and to not be brutalized and not overlooked or oppressed or anything like that, that doesn't mean the end of the world either. Just because the white male, his you know base of power is kind of crumbling away from him, that also doesn't indicate the end of the world. But at the end of the day... As I mentioned earlier, the end times are coming. Jesus is going to be coming back. We need to be acting every single moment as if he could come in the next moment. And so part of that, Jesus says elsewhere, the fields are ripe for harvest. And so I still want to talk about salvation this week in recognition of all these things going on and the fact that Jesus is going to be coming back. And when he does, whoever is ready to go is going to go and whoever's not ready to go is going to be left behind. He makes that abundantly clear in many, many passages. We're actually not going to be looking at those today, but just making ourselves aware of the importance of saving as many as we possibly can. Now, there's obviously a lot to talk about when we talk about salvation. And quite honestly, I could probably spend an entire episode each on these next four points, and maybe one day we'll do that. But for now, though, I want to take a kind of quick scan, starting from the position of the unsaved and what pertains to them, and then moving through until the point we get to heaven. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at predestination as we consider who can be saved. 
Then we'll move on to how we are saved. What do we need to do in order to be saved? We also need to talk about the purpose and function of works, what we do or do not do in our salvation and in our lives in Christ. And then finally, we'll be looking at what happens if we fail in those works, asking basically whether or not we can lose our salvation. So starting off with the question of who can be saved. This may seem to be easily answered with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, where Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Further, in verses 5 and 6, he writes that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. And yet, there are some other verses in the Bible that should catch our attention. So, first off, we get the idea of predestination, which we'll define further in a little bit, from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, it's important here that the word predestination does not appear by itself. Rather, it says, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. But what does it mean when it says, for those God foreknew? Let's take a look at an even more difficult passage, still from Romans, but this time chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This reference to Pharaoh comes from Exodus chapter 9, during the story of the plagues visited upon Egypt in order to free the Hebrew slaves so they could set out for the promised land. If we go back and read this story, we find that for the first five plagues, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go, the plague is lifted, and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But then there's a shift suddenly, where in the recounting of the plagues of boils, locusts, and darkness, it says that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites go. This, as our Romans passage says, was in order to display God's power in the land. Each one of the plagues was an attack against a specific Egyptian god, and by the coming and going of these plagues on Moses' prayers to God, demonstrated that the Egyptian gods had no power. So at least concerning Pharaoh, this was a very important moment in time. So let's keep that in mind. But let's continue to read back in Romans, because this gets even more fun. Picking back up in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
I want to draw attention to this passage because I want us to be humble for a minute and also recognize that there aren't always nice and easy and comfortable answers to our questions. I want to take the opportunity to remember that God is God and we are his creation. It is his right to do with us as he pleases. Let's remember that God created a perfect garden, gave us everything we could want, and only gave us one rule. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We walked away from him, we rejected his perfection and his perfect creation, to go after our own lusts. It says back in Genesis that she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Do you think, in this perfect garden, that there was not plenty of other fruits that were good for food and pleasing to the eye? Instead of looking at the bounty, we focus on the one thing we can't have and think that God is holding out on us. Let's pick up Romans again in verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Paul reminds us in the third chapter of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, each of us, have done something worthy of death. And yet instead of giving us what we deserve, he shows great patience and displays the riches of his glory. There's another example we have of a biblical figure whom God may have hardened in order to display the riches of his glory, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. It took me a number of years and times reading this for this question to come up. The story occurs only in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, or at least this version of the story is only told in that gospel. Jesus and his disciples were at a home, and a woman brings an expensive alabaster jar of perfume, breaks it, and anoints Jesus with it. Judas, sitting there, asks, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. One day, while reading this, and around the time I was contemplating the fact that Jesus would need to be betrayed in order to go to the cross, I wondered, was John the only one who knew Judas was a thief? If Jesus so often knew the hearts and thoughts of men, did he not know what Judas was doing? And if he did know, why would he continue to let Judas carry the money bag? Repeated sin hardens the heart, prepares the way for Satan to take firm grasp of our wills to bend it to his own. We see this in Ephesians 4 verses 26 to 28. By permitting Judas' theft to continue, Jesus was almost setting Judas up to take the fall to betray him later on. So we have this strange and kind of sticky situation, right? We read earlier that God desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet for Christ to become that sacrifice, it required all sorts of men to act against God's will. It could be said that it is God's will that we love everyone, and yet his will in sacrificing his son required Judas to lie and betray, it required Pilate to abandon his own conscience and bow to the will of the crowds. It required violent Roman soldiers to whip and beat Jesus so that by his stripes we might be healed. And it required an unjust and gruesome execution. So how then do we understand all this? Who can be saved and why are some hardened while others show mercy? Let's consider this one thing first. When Paul writes to Timothy that God desires all men to be saved and that Jesus came to be a ransom for all people, he writes earlier about false teachings going around the area where Timothy is a pastor. And it mentions again there being no difference between Jews and Greeks. 
So first, when Paul says that Christ is a ransom for all people, he may simply be talking about the fact that Messiah was not for Jews alone. We've looked before at the heresy that Gentiles had to follow certain Jewish customs in order to be saved, and how Paul argued against that. But we also need to understand from that that no one is excluded from salvation based on race, nationality, former religion, or any of those things. There are no entire people groups that we can say, Christ came only for these people and not for those people. It's kind of like the movie Ratatouille, right? It's not that anyone can cook, it's that a cook can be anyone. So, how do we think about God's hardening or displaying mercy? We touched on it briefly earlier, but let's take a look at one more passage. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's critical for us to remember that this has not changed. Left to our own devices, as slaves to our flesh, as Paul talked about, and we've looked at several times in earlier episodes, Our trajectory is always towards only evil all the time. So our hearts hardening, or us being doomed to destruction, is not because of some active assertion by God against our will. It is not as if, by our own determination, we would be good, except for God exerting himself to make us bad. Far to the contrary, only by God's exerting himself against our will are we ever any good. By that, I mean those who have not crucified themselves with Christ and become slaves to the Spirit— To the extent that they are morally good is only because of God's mercy and grace toward all his creation. That he gives wisdom, reason, and understanding that humans can consider our ways, determine if they are to our detriment or our advancement, and make choices toward equality, justice, and a future. So these cases of Pharaoh and Judas, for example, are specific and unique moments in history as we mentioned. Events where we might see God exerting himself, hardening Pharaoh's heart, though we might say Pharaoh started it, in order to display his power. We should not take that to mean that Joe Quimby of Aurora is going to find himself trapped by God's will into a path of destruction, a path he has no hope of turning off of. In both cases, Pharaoh and Judas, we see men who are already well down that path, quite on their own, by the time God stepped in. And so we can take away from this, I think, that God provides enough mercy and grace to all that we can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But because God foreknew some who would continue to refuse, he raises them up to a high position in order to display in them his power, for the sake of the others he foreknew who would come to Christ, to show them the riches of his glory. For you and I, then, the decision remains of whether we want to be saved or not. Will we choose the eternal riches of God's glory and kingdom, or will we see the one thing that is good for food and pleasing to the eye, and partake of that to the destruction of our souls? For your sake, I hope you choose to be saved. Now, how do we do that? Religion's greatest feats, sometimes, is in making this as difficult as possible. We begin attaching riders. Well, you might have asked Jesus into your heart, but if you're not doing this, 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 or this, you're not actually saved which basically means you have to do this, 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 and this in order to be saved. Fortunately, the Bible is very clear. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? 
Because of this last part, some might say all you need to do is say the name of Jesus, and to a degree that's true. But you say it because you believe, not because it's just a name. Maybe to you that seems too easy. There needs to be repentance, right? People need to repent and turn to God, and then they'll be saved. They can't just call on Jesus. There has to be a change of heart. I am on a journey. I don't know about you. And there are sins I'm committing that I don't realize are sins because God hasn't shown it to me yet that they are. Rather, to face instantly the total depravity of our hearts would crush us. And as was prophesied about Christ by Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So when God finally reveals to me a sin that I am committing, am I unsaved again until I repent of it? Of course not. Salvation doesn't keep coming and going based on our mood or on some fleeting attitude. And yet we talked about holiness a couple weeks ago, right? The need to do what is right. And there's a huge part that faith plays in that, the same faith that is required to save us. So how do we understand the interplay between faith, salvation, and works? Let's take a look at a passage from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, again, this is the important question that we're still asking concerning how to be saved. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, this is interesting because this same story of Abraham was used by Paul in Romans chapter 4. But Paul argued that it was by faith alone that Abraham was considered righteous, which is our salvation, by the way, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, as we talked about a few episodes ago, and not by works. Yet James seems to be saying that it is by faith and works using this same story. Well, first let's recognize that the instruction by Paul is focusing on the need for faith that is not tied to following the law, capital T, capital L. Paul is addressing again the issue that circumcision was supposedly necessary to be saved. It's not. To prove that, he reminds the Romans that Abraham was considered righteous before being circumcised, and certainly long before the law of Moses came along. There again, certain false teachers were claiming that the Gentiles needed to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. But in James, we're looking at the fact that faith does not exist in a vacuum. I've heard it described similar to this way. Let's say you come to me needing $500 for a car repair. And I gave you a key and said, go to this address. There's a locker there. This key will open that locker and there's $500 in there. It's all yours. Go ahead and take it. If you believed me, if you had faith in my word... You would go to the address, find the locker, and take the money. If you said, I believe you, but went and asked someone else for the money, and never went to see if the $500 is in the locker like I said, well, wouldn't that prove that you didn't truly believe me? Your faith in my word is worthless because you didn't act on what I said. 
And in truth, I would reasonably assume that you didn't actually have faith in me, no matter what you said. In very much the same way, if we claim to believe in Jesus and everything he said about what is right and true, but do not act on it, do we truly have faith? If Jesus said that the way of life in the kingdom and God was to love our enemies and do good to those who mistreat us, but we decide instead to harbor malice and anger toward those who annoy us or do things we think they shouldn't, can we really say we have faith in Jesus? Another analogy I've considered is that our works are like the heat that comes off an internal combustion engine. Simply applying heat to the engine does not make it run and does not produce the ability to drive. But if the engine is running and capable of propelling a car, there will be heat coming off the engine. Maybe not much at first, but the longer it runs, the hotter it gets. We too, the longer we are saved, the more works we should produce. So now we come to the final and perhaps hardest question. Can we lose our salvation? We've said it does not come and go multiple times based on mood or temporary attitude. But what about verses like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this passage is about those who are already saved. Look, it says, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, not that can sanctify them. We could also read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Jesus talks about this too in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 34. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, some may point to Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 that says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I personally am not a huge fan of using this verse for this purpose because the love of God and our salvation are not the same thing. Salvation has been made available to us because of his love, but John 3.16 tells us that he loves the whole world, and yet we know that not everyone will be saved. Jesus says that few find the narrow way that leads to life. Also, what this says is that nothing can separate us. Nothing external to us can come between us and God's love. But notice our Second Timothy passage says, If we disown him, he will disown us. Between that and our Hebrews passage of those who deliberately keep on sinning, I'm led to believe that we can choose to reject our salvation. Some might say that to do so means we were never saved in the first place, but that's not what we see happening here, as we've said. Rather, those who are sanctified by the blood turn around and treat it as an unholy thing, deliberately keep on sinning, and now no sacrifice remains, but only fearful expectation of judgment. What we have instead is exhortation to persevere. Going back to Hebrews 10, but starting in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Then jumping forward to verses 35 through 39, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So even there, we can see this suggestion that if we do not persevere, that we may not receive what he has promised, and that he takes no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But what about the part that says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is key too, so we'll close out by looking at a few other passages. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Understand then that when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, the Holy Spirit is put inside you and you are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms as it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. You are brought into fellowship with God. That Holy Spirit cannot be denied by God. He cannot deny himself. Insofar as the Holy Spirit remains in us, teaching us and guiding us into all truth, we are saved. We may prove faithless. We may, out of despair and wrong focus, allow our faith to die, as James says, to stop acting out what we claim to believe. We do not reject or disown Christ outright, and he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So even if we slack off, we are always able to be brought back. Many believe it is impossible to lose your salvation no matter what you do. I don't find that necessarily in Scripture. But one thing I know, I won't test God. I'm not going to play such a dangerous game of chicken to say, I'll live how I want and let's see if I still get saved or not. There is no point and no value, and living in accordance with God's will is far more preferable and enjoyable, quite honestly. So I intend, with all my ability given me through the grace of God, to remain faithful and persevere and stand firm, knowing that if I do, I will be richly rewarded by God in the day of Christ Jesus. All of this, this entire topic, as we kind of said, this is a very important thing for people to understand, both Christians and non-Christians. And so we as writers, as Christian writers, let me specify that. Sometimes the topics we talk about for writers is for writers in general, whether you believe or not. In this case, particularly, I want to address Christian writers specifically, because when we start talking about villains, this idea of salvation is kind of at the core of this idea that there are quote-unquote villains in the world. Now, we can look back in the history of storytelling in books and in films that villains were often evil just for the sake of being evil. That is widely recognized as a terrible cliche. Most 
if not all books that come out today, most publishers and agents today are not looking for such a two-dimensional villain. So we need to be paying more attention to the villains we create. But again, as Christians, since we're more concerned with God's opinion of us and doing what he asks us to do, we're not going to completely throw out the door what the world wants, but I believe the considerations we have are perhaps more manifold because we're answering to God instead. So the one thing I think we need to be careful of doing is only making the villain as bad as the story requires. It can be a temptation to create this super ultra bad, horrible, over-the-top evil villain. And I think we should be careful of gratuitous evil. The world is full enough of it as it is. And so if your intent for the story is to draw attention to just how evil things can be in the world, and you want a story to help the reader understand how to face that kind of evil, then go wild. Still needs to be justified, still needs to be internally consistent with the story you're writing, the characters you have, and things like that. But be careful of just trying to show how evil a character is to make it easy for your reader. And that's, to me, that's kind of the bottom line, is that there's choices we can make as writers that at the end of the day are just being lazy. We don't want to put the work in of really dealing with theological or thematic concepts. And so we just have a character do something outlandishly evil to just really establish them as the evil character. And I don't know that Christians should be writing those kinds of books. Again, if the story requires an outlandishly evil character, do it but make sure you're dealing with it well. Because I would say what we don't want to do with this is draw too much attention to the devil, okay? is essentially what this, this is kind of what I'm getting at with this idea, is that depending on our audience, what they have experienced so far, we don't want to overwhelm them, first of all, with how evil the world is, especially if this is for like a middle grade audience or, you know, very young children. Obviously, you don't want to get too deep in on that. But to the degree that there's plenty of real evil in the world, that unless you're going to address or offer your reader some sort of hope about how such evil could possibly be confronted or maybe even overcome, if you're not going to do that or not going to do it well, you are doing your readers a disservice by overwhelming them with even more evil than already exists. And there's plenty in the world that exists. So I would say, again, be careful of gratuitous evil. Don't make your villain a rapist just because that's something that's truly terribly evil if it's never going to be addressed. The other thing that kind of happens is that we try to make the sympathetic villain. Again, this goes back to this idea that the world doesn't want two-dimensional villains anymore. The character who is evil simply for the sake of being evil because the protagonist needs someone to fight against. And so writers have started building these backstories as to why did the person turn out the way they did. The danger here is that if we do it too convincingly, we can run the risk of excusing their evil choices that the reader sympathizes so much with the villain that the fact that what they're doing is wrong begins to be kind of whitewashed. Say, well, the villain had no other choice, so they had to do it. Then that turns into, well, then this sort of action shouldn't be punished because it wasn't truly the character's fault. It wasn't the villain's fault. And you'll see this happening in the real world. And that's, to me, that is the danger of these sorts of things is that, yes, we need to sympathize with there's a lot of pain and hurt going on in the world. But as Christians, we have to understand and accept and teach 
that we are still responsible for the choices we make. It may have seemed like there is no other choice, but we know especially through Christ and in God, he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. This applies to our villains as well. No temptation they've had to do this or that thing is uncommon. And the scripture goes on to say, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way out. Part of that way out for us as Christians is to, as we talked about in an earlier episode, we know we don't have to sin. There is a way out. Maybe we need to fight for it tooth and nail, but there's a way out. We can choose to be holy in any situation. A large part of that comes from the grace of God, as we've talked about, that this ability to move with effortless precision is something that only Christians are guaranteed to have. So we can acknowledge to a degree that the villain's choices are still their own. We can acknowledge that apart from the grace of God, apart from Christ, you are still a slave to sin. You do owe an obligation, as we've talked about elsewhere, that they have an obligation to the flesh. We do not have an obligation anymore to the flesh, but to the spirit to live according to its desires. But in all of that, we also need to acknowledge that there is a way to not sin. There's a way for evil to not endure, but it's through Christ and in God. So however, even writing fantasy, you know, I write fantasy books. There needs to be a way to address that and be careful that as we create this backstory of why the villain turned out the way they did, that we don't write it in such a way that the only option the reader walks away with is they had to make the choices that they did. We need to write it in such a way that they had another choice. They clearly chose to ignore that and abandon it for whatever reason and became who they were. And the third thing is the redemption of the villain. This can work. It can also be done very, very badly. What I don't think we want to do, given the world we live in, given the fact that hell is a real place, that it was created for the devil and his demons, but those who reject Christ will still end up there. It was not made for us humans, but we choose to go there. So there will be people there. There are people who are not going to be redeemed, again, because of their own choices. So this kind of goes back to our tragic backstory of the villain. If we, this kind of refers a little bit back as well to our talk about gender. If it becomes a theme that every single villain is redeemed, that suddenly turns back from what they were doing or what they were going to do and all forgiveness is given, I think that is insincere to the world we see. And the danger there too lies in a perversion of justice. Recognizing that Christ took the punishment for our sins, but he did not take away the consequences of our sins. He took away the eternal consequences, but the daily and in this life consequences. You cannot get drunk, drive a car, kill someone with it and say, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I should be allowed to just go free. There are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to the villain's actions. Sometimes it is death. It's, I think, worthy to note that even that earthly consequence of the death penalty does not negate or subvert or nullify the possibility of eternal salvation. But when we're writing our stories, we don't want to get so caught up in the idea of redemption that we end up kind of throwing out the idea of justice, of eternal damnation, and things like that. So again, on an individual book basis, if you want to redeem your villain, that is 100% okay. As with everything else, it needs to follow logically from your story. 
And I would suggest there still needs to be some sort of consequence to the villain's actions. Maybe it means he doesn't necessarily die. Maybe it means he does stop what he was doing and stops destroying the entire world for the sake of his ego, turns away from that to some sort of redemption arc, but there still needs to be consequences for that character, for our reader to appreciate and understand. Because I think a big issue we face in this world is that people want zero consequences to their actions, that they can live however they want, decide to do whatever they want, and receive no negative consequences for it, I think it is more than ever important for us to push back against that and say, no. Yes, we believe Jesus took your eternal punishment for sin, but he did not take away the consequences of your actions. So, that's all we have for this week. Join me again next week as we dive into some more thoughts on the idea of story, looking at creational realities for Christians, and then why we have structure, and even the word story, what does story mean? I hope this has been helpful and encouraging. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.